the Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing the movie backlog. Each episode, we serve up a double feature discussion of movies we selected for each other to catch up on. I'm Greg. And I'm Leanne. And 2020 sure has been a year. We had two episodes planned for December, but like so much of this year, things went a little bit sideways and the timing didn't really work out for us to record them. So as an alternative, we planned a bit of a year-end wrap-up. But today instead, we're going to be doing a quick review of some holiday movies released this year that we ended up watching together and a couple we watched on our own, as well as taking a look back at this year just kind of as a whole, a little retrospective. Yeah, sometimes when you look back on the year, it's hard to not focus on just the bad things. So something that Greg and I started as our own personal tradition is doing a New Year's Eve pinata that we put good things in, but might just be worthwhile running through some of the things that happened this year that were not terrible, just to, you know, highlight the the bright spot in a bit of a dark year. It's a wonderful tradition that, how many years has this been now? I think we've made four, to be honest. I think this year would be four if we decide that we're going to do one. Yeah, it's a tradition we kind of adapted from the show Please Like Me, if anyone has seen that. If not, you should watch it. It's wonderful. It's just a good way to, as Leanne said, not focus so much always on the bad things and try to remember some of those things that, you know, back in January, February, March, that like seemed like an eternity ago. Yeah, like back in February, Rick and I went to Fan Expo in Vancouver, which is a media and comics convention. I'm not 100% convinced we did do that in February, but I'll take your word on it. I have it in my Good Things 2020 jar that only has like eight things in it, mostly (laughs) because I stopped adding stuff throughout the year. But I also have it written on a calendar somewhere. So it definitely happened this year, even though it feels like it was ages ago. That was amazing we did a group cosplay i think it's the first time we've done a group cosplay together we went as team rocket members yeah we were team rocket grunts got lots of recognition which was very cool took some pictures with some like small kids and some other people uh had an unfortunate run-in with somebody who was also cosplaying as professor oak but was like a little bit too into it compared to the two of us now somewhere out there is my lost Pichu stuffy that fell out of the backpack. <laughs> Rest in peace, Pichu. We also saw Birds of Prey back in February, which we both enjoyed quite a lot. And I wouldn't mind rewatching, actually, just kind of refresh my memory. But Going to the movies has always been a big thing for us. And it feels like this year we haven't been able to see any movies, but we did see a couple towards the beginning of the year. We had got at least one trip, unfortunately not more, to the drive-in during the whole COVID scare when it was still open at about half capacity. Birds of Prey was the last movie that we actually saw in theaters. And then I think it was in May we were able to go to the drive-in and we saw Back to the Future, which was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I've missed the drive-in. I've missed the theater. And we were also able to do an escape room, which I know we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, So that was the first time that you and I had done one together, but you'd done one with some friends from work, which was a lot of fun. Something I'm hoping that we can do again. Yeah. Further into the pandemic now, it seems I'm not like super keen on going to an escape room at the moment, but fingers crossed in 2021, there will be more escape rooms in our future. That was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, the big thing that happened for us this year is that we started the show. That was something that I suggested sort of offhand last New Year's Eve, sort of seriously, kind of not. And, you know, once all of this started happening, it just seemed like a good time to make it happen. Yep. There's been many a podcast for during the pandemic. We fully jumped on that train. It is 
been a really good way to force ourselves to kind of spend a bit more time together, like regular communication, regular, like just to have a project, something to be working on to like kind mm-hmm. of distract everything going on. And it's been really fun to just watch a bunch of movies, especially because you're constantly going, wait, you haven't seen that. You have to see this, Leanne, you have to watch this. And just, we never actually knew anything about it. And this has been a good way to actually catch up on some movies. And I think we've both found a few new faves, things we hadn't watched before. Yeah, it's definitely been weirdly productive. I've definitely picked up some new skills in terms of uh, editing the show from month to month. So I'm obviously not like fantastic or anything, but definitely, it is you know, awesome and wonderful. Figuring things out. Also, you turned 30 this year, which is a big milestone. And I know that we talked about that a little bit um, in one of our summer episodes. And so now it's been six months since you turned 30. How are you feeling now that you have had some time to settle into it? Yeah, that's that's about how I'm feeling. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not 100% sure I'm feeling it still. I'm still settling into the 30s thing. It's uh, it's difficult when a large portion of your friend group is still in their 20s and you're starting to just magically, like someone flipped a switch and now you're all suddenly vastly older than them all, even if you're not. And it's, I just feel so much more tired. 2020 was not the best year to turn 30. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's just compounding the fact that I feel older. I don't know if we talked about what we actually did for your birthday at all when we were talking about that we were able to get together in person which was nice and we had like a little backyard camp out watched movies and just was able to enjoy each other's company in it among all of this and in order to celebrate yeah all the campgrounds around us opened up about a month before my birthday or so but all instantly booked up so it was nice to be able to actually do something we'd been talking about which was going camping even if it was in the backyard so should we jump into some of these movies yeah let's do it i believe you're gonna start us off yes so we watched a good variety of movies. The first one we're going to talk about is not really Christmassy, but we're including it because the original advertising for this movie made it seem like it was going to be a Christmas movie. So when it came out at the beginning of, I believe, November, we watched Holiday, which is a Netflix original movie directed by John Whitesell and written by Tiffany Paulson. The movie stars Emma Roberts, Luke Bracey, Kristen Chenoweth, Francis Fisher, Manish Dayal, Cynthia Wu, and Jake Manley. And the premise of the movie is Sloane and Jackson are two single people not quite ready to settle down. After a chance meeting, the two agree to be each other's holiday, a convenient guest for the holidays to relieve questions about why they're single and being set up with any possible eligible suitor. As time goes on, it appears that Sloane and Jackson's lives are more intertwined than originally thought, and it isn't long before feelings begin to develop. That does not sound like the movie we watched. Just going to put it out there. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to be really concise with my summary, and it, if we were going to really describe this movie it would be a lot longer than that um so this movie has a tomato meter rating of 44 percent critic and 40 percent audience which i feel is a little on the high side but it's also in the appropriate range yeah Uh, my personal catch-up rating for this movie is a definitive deficit uh, I really did not enjoy this movie at all when we watched it. I would have to give it the exact same thing. For me, this was also a, a deficit. This was a capital D deficit. Yeah. The big thing about this movie for me is that it's just like overall was not good. Like the concept of the holiday is 
it really seems like it's intended to be like a holiday for specific holidays with the family, but it was like literally every holiday on the calendar from Valentine's Day to St. Patrick's Day to the 4th of July, like things that it doesn't really require a date to be there. And also Emma Roberts' character Sloan, like her mom was aware that Jackson was a holiday and it didn't do anything to alleviate the pressures of her trying to be fixed up or being judged for being single or any of that. So it was... It was just weird and not good. And I don't, I don't know. I just, I said, oh my God to myself in a really sort of horrified, embarrassed way so many times while we were watching it. The other thing is that pretty much every character in this movie is just truly terrible from Sloane herself to, to Jackson to literally everybody in Sloane's family. The only characters who aren't awful is her brother's wife, played by Cynthia Wu. Uh, I don't remember what her character name is, unfortunately. Characters had names in this? I wasn't aware that they put that much detail in. (laughs) And there is a doctor named Farouk, who is played by Manish Dayal, who Sloane's mother is trying to set her up with, who is also just generally wonderful. And both of these characters, unfortunately, get treated like shit most of the time. So that's... A pretty rough summary of that. You can check it out on Netflix if you're interested, but I certainly don't recommend it. Um, yeah. So for me, I mostly have the same notes down about holidays. Like the big one is the fact that the whole premise makes no goddamn sense. Like you said, neither of them need a holiday. Like from my understanding, the whole idea is akin to like having a beard. You want someone you can take home. Like the emphasis being like taking them home for the holidays. So your family will stop pestering you about being single, getting married, having kids. Like that's supposed to take the heat off you having this pretend date. But it made things worse. Like every time she would bring Jackson home, her parents fully knowing he was a holiday would pester her even more still bring people to set her up with and the fact that her holiday was best friends with her brother or whatever just made things super awkward and dumb like it wasn't a good holiday and then most of the time she was just taking her holiday to clubs and bars and like it was weird yeah it's definitely a concept that's better suited to like a fake dating situation but they didn't lean into that and i think if they did it would have worked better for me but primarily it was the fact that it was literally any holiday on the calendar that seemed to qualify for a holiday but seemed really silly. Another big thing was just that I really didn't like the main guy. He was super cute. And like in another thing, I would definitely watch him. I think I've seen him in a couple of things too. But like he was so awful in this. Like they both were. But like the only reason he wanted a holiday was he was tired of having to pretend to be nice around women he meets. So, like, by being with a holiday, it's like, oh, this is great. Now I can just let my guard down and be an asshole and I don't have to pretend to be nice. Like, isn't this wonderful? Oof, yikes. And I think Emma Roberts, she works really well in a lot of things. My big three that I really like her in would be Scream 4, Scream Queens, and American Horror Story, which all have a strong through line. <laughs> she makes for a super condoling villain character. I think she plays the evil bitchy character really well with, like, this high camp aesthetic, super over the top. But also, like, she's so charismatic that you really want to root for her in certain things. You really like her despite all of that. Like, she plays these characters like that really well. But when she's asked to be a little bit more, like, down-to-earth girl and, like, in these kind of rom-com-y roles... I think it really, like, hinders her ability to go to an 11. It doesn't really take her comedic timing and, like, her physical comedy aspect she's really good at. It doesn't really let her do a lot with that. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's really chained here into this terrible writing and just, like, terrible character. Yeah, they had a few scenes that included physical comedy for Emma, and I don't think that they really worked well in the framing of this movie. 
movie overall. Yeah, eh, that's about all I had in holiday, though. It was mostly just rants. If I had more time, I would certainly get into it, <laughs> but I would prefer not to. So I think we should just move on to the next one. So the one I found for us that I also had you watch was A New York Christmas Wedding. So this is directed and written by Oda J. Abbott, and the cast involves Mia Fairweather, Donna DeMio. Oda J. Abbott is also in it, as well as uh, directing and writing, and the wonderful Chris Knopf, Mr. Big. The premise here is as her Christmas Eve wedding draws near, Jennifer is visited by an angel and shown what could have been if she hadn't denied her true feelings for her childhood best friend. Uh, there is no current tomato meter, no critic, no audience. This doesn't seem to be a very well-known movie and as far as my ketchup meter for this i'd put it at a needs more ketchup i wouldn't douse this one like there was enough in there that i did like but it was janky like <laughs> it was not like a super well put together movie yeah i would agree i would similarly give it a could use ketchup yeah my big thing was just like wow this movie is wacky <laughs> like i first saw it on a list of like 2020 queer christmas movies coming out and from the trailer it was like oh this has like a bisexual person of color in the lead like this isn't something i kind of expected to see on Netflix and it was easy enough to find since it was on Netflix so I just decided to give it a watch but wow it was a lot it was fairly low budget almost no one could act and the plot was just bananas basically from the moment she meets her sassyish gay guardian angel who I think purposely gets hit by a car on his bike to like meet her I forget if oh, that was sure. clear and he's all like girl tomorrow look around you might see some answers girl just like okay and then she wakes up the next day in an alternate reality where her high school best friend slash potential lover who walked into traffic and died after having a stillborn baby in like the time current timeline is now alive and they're engaged and her dad who died of weird health causes is alive and it's like she doesn't remember any of it so she's like acting super weird she doesn't even remember her dog's name her fiance like doesn't seem to question this much and they just go along with their day-to-day -day life and it's like wacky 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 it was crazy the best part though is that you find out later on after she gets a taste of this life and then she goes back to her regular life with her other boring fiance that her guardian angel is actually her best friend slash lover fiance from alternate timelines stillborn baby from when they were kids and she fucked some random dude to like spite her or whatever and then her dad he was i don't even remember it was so crazy and it turns out that he is that stillborn baby but he's a full-grown man and a sassy gay man and like that doesn't make sense and then he's like, yeah, you can go back in time and have that other life with, with her if you want. But then I cease to exist. But like, I'm totally chill with that. And you're just left. You have so many questions. You're like, this is, what is this? This is so weird. <laughs> so of course she chooses to go back in time and he's just gone. Ah, it was weird. I had questions. Yeah. The way that you've described it as wacky, I made a note, you know, that the tone of the movie is very weird. Like the reaction that she has to things and like from scene to scene, the tone is just all over the place. I did find it kind of shitty that in both universes, everything that happens with her wedding happens without her input, which oh, totally. in, you know, the universe that she starts in, like, that's the big thing. You know, they're having dinner with her fiance's parents and like her fiance and his family is like very rich and his mom is like planning the whole wedding and doesn't care what her input is and she's like oh i booked this 
uh, venue and it's going to be on Christmas Eve. And like, that was very soon. And nobody was asking about like what she wanted to do for her wedding or anything like that. And then in the other universe, her fiance like surprises her in church in front of God and everybody to just like get married right that second. And I was just like, so in both universes, when she gets married, she has no input whatsoever about how and when and with whom and like any of the details of that. I was like, that kind of sucks for her. Uh, and she didn't seem like thrilled about the wedding that happens in the alternate universe, like when it gets surprised on her, which, you know, I get. Didn't really seem invested in either person she could pick yeah, from. Like, she didn't really have chemistry with either of them and she didn't really have a connection to either of them. Yeah. I also think it had some pretty serious, like very special episodes episode vibes oh a thousand percent there was a stillborn baby guardian angel sassy gay man in it it was real weird yeah but i mean the the big thing in the alternate universe with her best friend fiance was like the conflict there was they wanted to get married in the church where they were baptized and they grew up and everything but the priest was like uh, the church is kind of weird about that and then eventually he does like some introspection and research into the bible and he decides that he's okay with it and so he does marry them at the church and like that's the whole thing and it was like the very special episode vibe is yeah. with respect to like the conservative priest learning to accept homosexuality and, and same-sex couples and like in the current timeline priest guy has been excommunicated and has just like gone off the map because like he was just marrying gay people and then he just got like kicked out of the church or whatever and like that's how what happened to him in the the bad timeline i guess there was a lot of that in there one thing i did really like though was chris na who played the pastor i mean the pastor's character and motivations and stuff were kind of weird like especially like you said he's surprised marries them and he's basically just like hey everyone in my church who's gay get up here right now we're outing you and then we're gonna marry these lesbians (laughs) oh my god thank you for saying that because when i was watching it originally i was like did he just like out all of these people or these people who are already out and in the church it's not made clear yeah it's like if these people consulted with him privately and weren't out to people and now here before god and everyone like i'm calling you out specifically it it just pans to the audience as one single white guy gets up in disgust and walks out it's just i think there was like a black couple that got up and left i didn't see that it was (laughs) anyway yeah it was like one set of people left the church in disgust and it was like okay but i did like how really committed to this role chris not was like he went there he was like method acting through this like he's a professional everyone else who was acting was like phoning it in or couldn't act but chris not like he was gonna do it and i think a lot of that looking it up he is the executive producer of this so kind of good for him like this is a really diverse movie regardless of anything else you say it's telling the story of someone that would never really get their story told like a bisexual person of color in the lead is really cool there was a lot of topics in here that i thought like okay those were interesting like the the church dealing with gay marriage was like you know an interesting topic like there was a lot of things in here that i thought if someone maybe else made this movie it would have been interesting but I just thought it was really cool that Chris Knopf would, like, executive produce a Christmas movie like this. Two things with respect to the lead. I got the impression that, like, she wasn't actually bi, but she was, like, repressing the fact that she was a lesbian. Although the fact that, like, if she was bisexual would have been great. I'm pretty sure she's bisexual because 
it's not that she doesn't love her fiance David. It's made very clear that she has feelings for David. I thought that whole dilemma is, do I want to stay here with David who I do love, or do I want to go back and try make it work with my first love who I never got a chance with? And I never really got sexuality as a conflict in there at all. I don't know. Like that didn't seem to be a huge part of the conflict to me. Like she didn't seem to be repressing a ton. The other thing was at the end of the movie when she gets to go back to when they're teenagers so she can actually tell her best friend that she loves her and she does it and her best friend is just like, cool. Let's decorate that tree and that's my job. Also during that scene, the whole thing was that she was going to come over and decorate the tree and then in the background of that scene is a fully decorated tree and it was driving me crazy. It is so stupid. I think that's enough of that one though. Yeah. (laughs) It was interesting. I would say it's wacky enough that you could definitely watch it if you wanted to. It's on Netflix. It's, you know, it's there. If you're looking for a queer Christmas movie, that's definitely an option worth checking out. Especially if you want a queer Christmas movie that's not all white people. Spoiler yeah, alert for, for all sure. the movies coming up. <laughs> so our next movie that we watched together is The Princess Switch 2, Switched Again. So the director of this movie is Michael, and it was written by Robin Bernheim and Megan Metzger. That stars Vanessa Hudgens, Sam Palladio, Mark Fleischman, Mia Lloyd, Nick Sagars, Sue Ann Braun, Lachlan Nibior, and Florence Hall. And the premise is when Duchess Margaret unexpectedly inherits the throne to Montanero and hits a rough patch with Kevin, it's up to her double Stacy to save the day before a new lookalike, party girl Fiona, foils their plans. Uh, this movie has a tomato meter score of 64% critic and 40% audience. Oh, yeah. My personal ketchup rating for this is could use ketchup. I think you are sort of a similar oh. rating situation. Oh, I'm on a douse it. Oh, really? Douse it. Wow. No, this this needs so much ketchup that I don't know if there's enough ketchup. <laughs> the big sell for this movie is Vanessa Hudgens is very clearly having a good time. Like, she's playing three characters. They're all fairly different in terms of their personality. She gets to play, like, a really big over-the-top character in playing uh, Margaret's cousin, Fiona, who's, like, got a bad accent and is trying to get the throne so that she can basically rob the the monarchy. She's just looking for money. So she's having, like, a good time, and that's what makes the movie sort of watchable. But otherwise, there's, like, little to no stakes in this movie at all. Like, the reason why there's a switch is inconsequential. It's resolved in, like, two scenes, and yet the movie is still an hour and a half. What specifically about this movie makes you want to douse it? I didn't think that you thought it was that aggressively bad. It's... It's a crime to have Vanessa Hudgens playing three different identical related characters. I think I don't even think Stacy and Marguerite related. I don't think Whatever. they are related, no. But to have her play three different characters in this movie, and based on how wacky the first one was, I was watched the trailer for this and thought, oh, this is going to be oh wacky. This is going to be so camp. It's going to be dumb and fun, and I'm going to have great time. And it was criminally boring. Very little happens in this movie that is interesting or fun. There is almost none of what the first movie delivered you is still in here. Why I liked the first one so much was watching Vanessa Hudgens pretending, like playing a British character who is pretending to be an American character. And it's like just the layers of, of dumbness. And the switching was like the whole movie. And it was so wacky. And there was just like hijinks abound. We had a Santa as real subplot. It was like 
crazy. All the sets looked like you just vomited Christmas everywhere. It was over the top. And at least I felt like the cast in that movie was mostly trying, whereas I felt like in this movie, most people just gave up. Like, if you were Vanessa Hudgens, you fully gave up. The Kevin character is barely in this, does nothing. The prince does even less somehow. Like, he's blander than room temperature, untoasted Wonder Bread. Like, he is barely a person. Yeah, Stacey's husband, the prince, is, like, on screen, I think, like, three times in the whole movie. Otherwise, he's not even a thought. Like you said, the whole idea was, like, there was just no reason to switch again in this movie. They just threw in, like, a, hey, you want to spend more time with Kevin? Let's switch, but not tell my husband, the prince, for no reason to create drama. It's so dumb. There wasn't like, like the relationship drama with Stacy and her husband was yeah. like he was concerned that she was too invested in being a princess and they weren't spending enough time together. And like Stacy was like, Well, I'm trying to be the best wife possible for you by like really getting into the royalty thing. And then his entire subplot after that is having Kevin's daughter gaslight him. The whole yeah. movie, she's just gaslighting him. Like, oh no, Stacy's busy. Stacy doesn't want to see you. Stacy's doing this, and he's just fully being gaslit by this child the whole movie, just compounding on all his issues he already has. I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god, give this guy a break. The switch part also takes a really long time to happen in the movie. It's like 45 it's minutes about, in. Yeah, it's about halfway into the movie, and the reason why they switch like we said, basically resolves itself in about two scenes. And then we get this other convoluted plot with Fiona to kidnap Margaret, but she accidentally kidnaps Stacy. And then the reason for that is very stupid it's and very it doesn't stupid. work out. It's yeah. At least all the stuff with Fiona was super fun. Her bad wig that she has to quote unquote dye black, which then takes off the black wig and has Vanessa Hudgens' hair. <laughs> Like, her really bad Alaska as Mae West impression accent. Her queer-coded henchmen dressed in, like, Marco Marco outfits the whole time. It was crazy and wacky. Like, the whole kidnapping subplot where they just, like, went, let's just go full kidnapping. Like, that was their first thought. They didn't even try and do anything else. It wasn't like, oh, let's wait for the queen to ascend. And then, since I look exactly like her, we can spend years and years grifting her, just pretending to be here. Like, in small little grifts here and there or something. It's just like, no, let's kidnap her. I'll pretend to be here. We'll steal the crown jewels and go to an island somewhere with all our money. It's like, whoa. <laughs> At least I liked how wacky that got. But, like, the rest of the movie was just boring. Wow, you fixed the movie in two sentences. <laughs> Especially given how little effort Fiona was willing to put into doing literally anything. Waiting for Margaret to go through coronation and actually become queen would have made way more sense for her because it would have been so much easier. You could have spent years dressing up as the queen, just going around drifting people for money. Like, you could have had it made. My other thing was just, I'm, I'm not sure why in general, just talking more about Netflix Christmas movies broadly, why they get so popular. They all seem to lack any earnest joy. They have terrible budgets and sets. Um, like, for example, the criminal offense in this one was Santa's workshop. I don't even remember that scene where it was like clearly 20 degrees outside in a late August day. And they have all these fake styrofoam snowmen and fake snow falling around them. And it's just bad looking. You can tell this is not filmed in Europe in like a snowy European fake country. Like they did not put money into it, but all yeah. of them are like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel the same about some of the other like Netflix series that come out, not just the movies. There are definitely some that are, you know, very high quality and very good. And then there are some that are very 
slapdash thrown together. So I don't know. I think they become popular just because Netflix is a service that a lot of people use. And when you've got big names attached to it, people watch it and it gets a lot of traction. But People lose their shit for the Christmas Prince movies, for these movies. Like my niece is really obsessed right now with like The Night Before Christmas. But they're all so bad. But somehow people love them. I watched last year and it was so bad. It was so bad they don't have that hallmark earnestness at all they're like the reason people seem to like the hallmark ones is missing in this it seems like these are just an algorithm that you just threw in all the hallmark movies into and it just came out with make it vaguely european it's about royalty there's hijinks like i don't know they're all the same they're all about royalty i mean holiday definitely falls into that category as well like we hated that movie and then a lot of the initial response to it was weirdly positive i went on twitter looking for spicy takes and there was not a spicy take in sight it was all people genuinely obsessing this movie i'm just curious about the like thing if they were worse i could see why if they were better i could see why but they're just down that middle line of not good but not fun boring well let's move on to a movie that apparently qualifies as not good considering you weren't capable of finishing it I could have. I was capable. I just chose not to. Uh, so the next one is one that I watched. Uh, Leanne has not seen this one, so I will fill you in on some of the wackiness. Uh, this is Christmas on the Square, the Dolly Parton vehicle. This movie is directed by Debbie Allen. The screenplay was written by Maria S. Slater, and Dolly Parton did the music and lyrics. There is 14 original songs in here, apparently. I didn't wow. get to hear them all. <laughs> so the cast is pretty big. This is Dolly Parton, Christine Baranski, Jennifer Lewis, Josh Segura, and one notable addition for me would be Janine Mason from So You Think You Can Dance. I always like seeing those people pop up places. So the premise of this is an embittered Scrooge of a woman plans to send to sell her small town, regardless of the consequences to the people who live there. The tomato meter for this is 64% critic and 54% audience. And for my ketchup scale, this is a clear douse it, considering I got 40-ish minutes in. Oh, boy. So the reason I couldn't finish this... It seems like I should have been able to because it is targeted at me. It seemed seemingly from the trailer and everything, it was targeted at me specifically. It is Dolly Parton and Christine Baranski with Jennifer Lewis, even Janine from So You Think You Dance. And it's a musical with 14 original songs. Even Debbie Allen, who I love, directed this. It should be like screaming gay from the rooftops. I should be able to watch this five times a week like Mamma Mia and not get bored of it. But after watching it, it was really clear from the start that this actually wasn't targeted at me. It is very clearly targeted at suburban moms. It is a suburban mom musical. And not in the way that, like, Mamma Mia is. This is one of those, like, religious suburban mom things, I guess. Like, it's very religious. It's super heavy on that from the start, which isn't super surprising knowing Dolly. But it's just everywhere. And it just kind of screams, you know, this is something for your suburban mom who really likes Dolly. Not so much like this is for the gays who love Dolly. Because you have that double audience where she's, like, really sassy and fun and love and warming and accepting, but she's also really old-school and religious and down-to-earth and wholesome at times. So from the opening number, I'm pretty sure I was just messaging you on Discord, like, oh my god, Leanne, this movie is insane. (laughs) 
I'm pretty sure I ranted about it for a while already. I don't. I remember you telling me that it was a lot. It was a lot. I don't really know what I was expecting, but it opens on Dolly as this homeless woman in like raggedy clothes with a box that says change, but she's got like a full beat on. Like her face is like full, fully lit, like full Dolly face. And then she has this intense CGI, I'm an angel glow about her and all these CGI sparkles. And she just starts singing. She's singing her her nice little song about Christmas on the square. And then about 20 seconds into her nice soft singing, we cut back and there's just hundreds of middle America people dressed in gap clothing, breaking out into flips and kicks and choreographed dance numbers, just like screen belt dancing. And it's just, whoa, what just happened? It's an assault on the eyes and not even a fun campy way. It's just, this is all the worst parts of like Newsies. It was a lot, except they're instead of newsboys, they're all just people that look like they're in a mall in middle America. There's all these weird asides in this first musical number. Like this one woman just comes into screen and just screams, I need mistletoe. And then someone hands her a mistletoe and she just like runs off screen screaming. It's weird. And then you get Christine Baranski who comes in and she's singing her part of the song all about how she hates Christmas and she's all scroogey. She goes around singing about how she's going to evict everyone on Christmas Eve. And she's really doing her best here. Like she is selling it and there was many moments where I thought, okay, I'm going to keep watching this just for her. But at some point, even that wasn't going to save it for me. It was just a lot. And I think it just wasn't campy in the way I like. And it was just so religion-y. There was just something about it that just wasn't clicky. So a few musical numbers in, it was very obvious to tell where this movie was going. It was basically just uh, your Christmas Carol type story. Dolly Parton's an angel. She's come here to fix Christine Baranski's life. And she's all scroogey and driving all her friends away. And there's like an ex-romance in the town that uh, of Christine Baranski's that you know she's going to get together with. So I just really didn't feel the need to finish it. Uh, the one thing, though, that kind of made me want to finish it was watching the Trixie and Katya's uh, Queens Who Like to Watch video on this. I was kind of interested what their take would be on it. They actually had a lot of the same feelings as I did originally, but they were kind of into it. And hearing them recap the story seems like, okay, by the end, it apparently goes off the rails crazy. So this is kind of just what I got from them. So this is kind of a little bit of like a game of telephone where I know all these details aren't 100%, but apparently there's a flashback to high school. And due to some misunderstanding, she thinks her love interest is cheating or flirting on her or something with some other girl. It might have been her best friend, Jennifer Lewis's character, but really he was just showing her a ring that he was going to give Christine Baranski. But then she gets jealous and goes off and like fucks some random dude and gets pregnant. And then her dad forces her to have the baby and then like in the hospital, like grabs the baby from her moments after childbirth and just screams, I'm taking this away or something and just like leaves. And then she becomes bitter. And years later, she finds it like hidden in like the bottom false bottom of a lamp like her dad's bible which has like their entire family history written in it including this mystery baby and it turns out the mystery baby is the pastor from the town who she was trying to evict and then now she does the magic of christmas and everyone loves each other and it's just weird and i don't know that's apparently the movie i didn't watch it but that's apparently what happens wow that is a bit convoluted yep Mystery babies are a big thing in these movies, I guess. I guess. 
At least this time it wasn't like a guardian angel stillborn baby. Finding her dad's Bible with their whole family history in the false bottom of a lamp. That's such, such a, what are these things? Like, that's the same premise to, like, the first Christmas prince, isn't it? Don't they, like, find the secret deed or inheritance in, like, an ornament that was, like, handcrafted or something? Yeah, but that's, like, less weird. A false bottom in a lamp, like, who's looking? Well, it's like, a, I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. There's a whole thing about lamp lighting, and her dad loved watching them light the lamps. And the whole parable of the lamplighter or something. I don't know. Oh, and it turns out Janine Mason, who's playing uh, Christine Baranski's slave. What do you call the, the slave that you paid? Her assistant is actually a guardian angel in training. So Dolly Parton is trying to, like, train her. And that's why she's Christine Baranski's assistant to get close to her to try and make her not so evil. And then by the end, she gets her wings and is now a guardian angel. I don't know. It's weird. You could watch it, maybe. See if you could get through it. It's a movie. There's songs. It does sound like there is a lot happening in that movie. There is a lot happening. The first musical number is like 15 minutes long, and it feels like you watch the whole movie. It's it's just a barrage. Wow. Well, I might watch it maybe in the new year. I'm probably not feeling too inclined to watch before then. And I certainly haven't felt <laughs> too inclined to watch it. Did I not tell you point. on this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of want to finish it after watching Trixie and Gotti talk about it. And just, I didn't think it'd get that wacky. It sounds like an adventure. I'm more inclined to watch things to the end than you are, so. I'll bail quick. <laughs> Uh, so our next movie is a movie that I watched on my own that Greg hasn't seen. Uh, it's also a Netflix movie and is uh, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. This is written and directed by David E. Talbert and stars Forrest Whitaker, Keegan-Michael Key, Hugh Bonneville, Annika Nani Rose, Madeline Mills, Felicia Rashad, Ricky Martin as a voice, uh, Justin Cromwell, and Sharon Rose. The premise for this movie is Jeronica's Jangle was the greatest inventor in the world until his apprentice Gustafson stole his book of designs for himself. Now, many years later, following other losses and disappointments in his life, Jeronicus has lost the magical spark that made him so inventive and faces foreclosure of his shop. That is until his estranged daughter Journey arrives on his doorstep and helps him reclaim what was lost. Uh, the tomato meter rating for this is 90% critic and 76% audience. And the difference there is actually very surprising to me. Also, I think both of those are the highest we've seen so far in this list. Yeah. 90% is like, I think maybe one of the highest critic scores that we've had the entire year, maybe. Don't Close quote good. me on that, but I think it's it's definitely up there. I think maybe below this is like a mid to high 80. Um, my personal catch-up rating for this is Perfect As Is. This movie is a predominantly Black cast and is a completely unique story. Uh, it's a little bit like Santa, but not Santa. When he's young, Geronicus is an adventure of toys that are incredibly popular, especially at Christmas time. And uh, after Gustafson steals the book at the encouragement of this little matador uh, toy that he creates that is basically uh, sentient, he uses the designs to become incredibly rich and he becomes like the most famous toy maker. Ultimately, until he comes to the end of the book and he doesn't have any designs for the current Christmas here. And Geronicus, after this happens... Uh, his wife dies and his relationship with his daughter breaks down until ultimately she leaves him. And he basically turns his shop into a pawn shop. And then Journey shows up and she also has, you know, the same magical ability to, you know, look at these formulas that make a lot of his inventions work. And I, I enjoyed it. It was a really cute movie. It has some 
incredible musical numbers. The songs are all really good. I didn't know that was a musical. Yeah. I, I wasn't expecting it to be a musical, but it has quite a few musical numbers, and I really enjoyed all of the music. Um, the songs were all really good. The performances were all really strong. Also, this movie is aesthetic AF. The costuming is so good. Like, everything is, like, vibrant. It's, like, very jewel-toned. It's very visually appealing. Yeah, it's definitely a movie worth checking out. I would say my only complaint is that the runtime is around two hours, which I don't know if it's just because of the way that this year has impacted my attention span feels a little on the long side. So I probably would have been able to cut it down a little bit. That seems but long I for say, Christmas movie especially. Yeah, but I don't think that it needs a lot of editing. And yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Maybe I should have watched that for a Christmas musical instead of <laughs> Christmas on the Square. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're looking for something that is more of an original story as opposed to like the rehashing of a very familiar Night Before Christmas kind of thing or a tired and trope-filled rom-com, although we're going to be talking about more of those in just a second. I don't know what you're talking about, Leanne, because this next one is not tired or trope-filled at all, except for some parts of it. <laughs> So next one is Dashing in December. This is directed and written by Jake Pelgrim. The cast includes Peter Port, Julian Pablo de Pace, and Andy McDowell. The premise here is that when Wyatt finally returns home for the holidays in an effort to convince his mother, Deb, to sell the family's Colorado ranch, a romance unexpectedly unites between Wyatt and their dashing new ranch hand, Pete, who dreams of saving this beloved property and the ranch's magical winter wonderland attraction while reawakening the spirit of Christmas in Wyatt's lonely heart. So not at all trophy at all. Not in the slightest. So the tomato reader here, they do not have a critic score, but it is 43% audience i thought was quite low and my ketchup scale for this would be needs more ketchup though it petered on perfect as it is for me because while it needs more ketchup i think a lot of the things i would change are more personal choices rather than a fault of the movie yeah my personal ketchup rating for this would be perfect as is I mean, there are some very small things, but I thought overall it was a pretty strong movie. Uh, so for me, I thought this was, having watched it after Christmas set up, I think that's part of why I liked it a little less. If I'd seen this before Christmas set up, which we'll talk about later, I think I would have liked this a lot more just because it's a similar movie, but this is much less my kind of style of movie with a lot of the um, the romantic leads kind of start out here as rivals or a little bit of enemies. There's a little bit of antagonistic flirting going on. There's a lot of like forced conflict and it just that whole side of it's not my favorite. And it takes a little bit of a while to kind of get going compared to something like the Christmas setup, which we were like three minutes in and there was flirting. And also maybe some of it is that Wyatt is really uptight and pretty rude. The fact he just like doesn't go home for years and years, leaving behind all these people, this kind of struggle while he lives his big city hotshot life. And then he swoops back in and tells everyone exactly what to do and how to live. And it was kind of like, okay, hold your horses, buddy. Like this, and like your mom is so sweet. And like the second you're like, you should sell your ranch, she's just like, okay, if that's what you want to do, honey. And it's just, oh, your poor mother is clearly, she clearly likes this place. But as he kind of warms up and opens up a bit and the romance with he starts, 
the movie really won me over. They are really adorable together. I thought they did have good chemistry. And a lot of the hallmark tropes in here, seen through kind of a different lens with the uh, queer couple, worked really well. I love all the, like, the horseback riding they're doing. Their slow dance to a Casey Musgraves song is adorable. Um, but, like, the little bit of, like, the cowboy feel in here is really great. Especially when it's not a Brokeback Mountain cowboy feel where everyone's, like, really repressed and sad. <laughs> um, the fact that they were both out is great. Uh, that not being a big conflict in here. And the other real big thing for me that sold it to me was the setting. I love that this clearly had some budget to it. So they got to film, I assume, on location. This wonderful wintertime ranch in Colorado. Like I said, the horseback riding, the line dancing, the cowboy hats in the bar, the log cabins, the snowy evergreens. Like, it was really gorgeous. And visually, it was really nice. Yeah, I agree with your uh, assessment of Wyatt that he was kind of rude. I think part of that is the actor who was playing him had some moments where he felt like he was kind of wooden. And I think that contributed to that. But I did like him overall. And I think a lot of his personality comes from how long he's been living in New York and the type of job that he does. Just kind of based on the impressions that you get from his high school friends that you meet during the movie. Uh, I also really liked that there was always these conversations about like, oh, like, why didn't you tell me that like Wyatt was gay? And basically being like, well, that's not the defining characteristic of who he is. So it's not like, oh, you're gay and my son is gay. Like, you guys should date. Which is, I was telling you that I recently have started watching Happy Endings and there's like a whole episode with Max and Brad where that's basically what happens. Yeah. Brad's like, hey, you should go out with this guy because he is also a gay. And like that's the whole concept of the episode. So and I think that's something that comes up a lot in a lot of things where there's like two characters that are gay where it's like, oh, you guys have the same sexual orientation, but nothing else yeah. is common between you, but you should definitely hook up. So I appreciated that. And I also really liked that they had a lot of conversations about like their relationship history and like how they kind of came to figure themselves out and everything. And it was felt really natural and not forced and really worked within the confines of the story that they were telling. Uh, I also liked that there was like a bit of a slow burn. I know that you don't like enemies to lovers and everything. And I didn't really feel like we were kind of at that point. Like they weren't so antagonistic, but there was definitely uh, a wedge between them before they were able to move yeah. towards a relationship. So I like slow burn, but I did kind of feel like I wanted the movie to move forward a little bit faster, if only because it is a movie and not, you know, like a TV show or something where you can draw something like that out for a little bit longer. For sure. I did. I really like the scene where Wyatt gets up in the morning and he's wearing like Christmas themed underpants. I know that's a weird thing to point out, but it was a nice characterization thing. You know, he's this very upright guy, you know, very formal kind of in a lot of ways. So it was a nice little casual peek at his his personality that I liked a lot. Definitely surpassed what I expected from the trailer. I thought it was going to be a lot cheesier, but it had a lot of heart. It was really earnest, and I really appreciated that it could give me that kind of a little bit of tropey, hallmarky goodness, but like do it in a really sincere, earnest way, tackle it in a slightly a unique angle, like really addressing, like you said, both of their struggles at coming out and how they got to the place they're at. It's really good. Yeah, especially with he's kind of ribbing Wyatt for being somebody who dates around a lot um, versus Heath who had, you know, like one bad experience when he was in college with the guy he was dating. And as a result, he's become very careful about opening himself up to romantic opportunities. 
So I, you know, just like a good dichotomy of experiences between the two characters that allowed them to, you know, share that intimacy and uh, make a connection. So after that, I suppose it's been long enough. We should probably talk about the big breakout hit of Queer 2020 Christmas. Yeah. Uh, So next we have Happiest Season, which is the first big picture queer holiday movie. It's written by Clea Duvall and is written by Clea Duvall and Mary Holland and stars Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Dan Levy, Alison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, Victor Garber, Mary Steenburgen, Mary Holland, and includes cameo appearances by drag queens Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme. Uh, this movie is about Abby and Harper, who have been dating for just about a year, and on the spur of the moment, during a Christmas outing, Harper invites Abby home to celebrate Christmas with her family, except there is a catch. Harper is not out to her parents a fact that is not revealed to Abby until they've almost arrived at her parents' place. But the resulting holiday is frustrating and awkward as the couple hides their relationship and Abby grapples with how different her partner acts at home. Uh, This movie has a tomato meter rating of 83% critic and 80% audience. My personal ketchup rating for this was could use ketchup. Where did you land on that? I am the exact same place. Could use some ketchup. Yeah. Um, It's pretty firmly in that middle there. Yeah. So there's a lot of good things about this movie, and there are a lot of not-so-good things. It's a very divisive Christmas movie. I've seen a lot of discourse about I've been reading a lot of different articles about the movie as well as they've come out talking about a lot of different things and other comments from people, you know, from a less critical frame. The three big things that I really liked about this movie is that it's about... Characters who are already in an established relationship. Such a big thing in queer movies, especially queer movies about women, is that they are always about longing. You know, there's longing glances and hidden touches and like all kinds of stuff like this. Usually in the historical context, there's at least like three movies this year that fall into that category. Usually played by straight women. Yes, this movie is full of actual queer actors and it overall has just like a great cast. I mean, I just listed everybody that's in it and we probably know every single person named save for a couple. And overall, the story feels very authentic. And part of that is because it is written by queer people. And that's a really big thing. Um, The three things that I didn't love about this movie, part of it is marketing. When I first heard about this movie, I think it was like a couple of years ago on Tumblr is where I first got wind of this movie before it came out. It really sounded like it was going to be like a fun sort of lighthearted hallmark e movie, but with queer characters. And uh, that is not what happens at all. It is a Christmas movie, but it's definitely much more fraught with drama in a not good way, especially since it is largely a coming out story. And the way that that happens and how it is ultimately handled is not wonderful. And the one thing that I really disliked about this movie so much is how aggressively Harper's family doesn't seem to want Abby to be there. Everyone is so rude to her. They're so dismissive. It's just, it's very uncomfortable to watch. I know that when we were watching it together, I just kept saying, like, Abby, leave. Just fucking leave. Like, that uh, was the big thing. Every few scenes. Yeah. So those are sort of my top three uh, likes and top three dislikes. 
uh, what were some of the things that worked or didn't work for you in this one? Yeah, I, I mean, I echo a lot of that. For me, big thing is I'm just so tired of these clear stories centering around coming out in 2020. I was really excited when I heard about this movie, especially the cast, especially Stewart. She delivered fully though. Everything I expected her to deliver, she delivered. There was a lot I liked about it, but just the idea that we're still telling this story in a fairly similar way. Like this movie felt like a script that got left in a drawer from like 2003 that just got made kind of. And I know a lot of that's not fair because like this is clearly very personal and these kind of stories do deserve to be told. But as the big flagship story, it was a little sad that it was all about coming out. Uh, like that's that's an important part, but it's not the only part of the queer person's life. Like you come out, and then there's so much more after that, right? Like that's not it's just the beginning of the story. Um, so I was kind of hoping that that would be like the end of Act One. Like they'd get there, and it's like surprise, this is my lesbian lover, and then we'd move on to Act Two and Three, and like explore how that's changing her life and her family and all this stuff. And or I thought maybe. Maybe it could have been something like go full birdcage and have both of them be out and the family accepting to a degree. But now the dad has a big political donor coming over for Christmas and he wants to force the girls back into the closet uh, and all the hijinks that ensue. Or they're just out. Everyone's out. And now it's just a love triangle with Riley. You know, something like there was so much good here. But it just kept feeling stifled by the angst. Like, there's just so much clear angst. Like, it just kept bringing me back to a place of memory that I didn't necessarily want to go back to in a fun Christmas movie. Where it's just, like, how horrible her family was, how horrible her friends were, how horrible everyone around her was. It turned Harper into this horrible person. And one of my other big things is that we never got to see Abby and Harper free being shoved back in the closet. We didn't get to get established to them as a couple. We really don't know why Abby would cling so hard to this relationship and red flag after red flag after red flag choose not to leave the situation that was so toxic mm-hmm. to her because we didn't really know what their relationship was like or if it was strong or like what they really liked about each other. We just got thrown into them in the closet pretty quickly on. And that's just the movie. Yeah. Aside from like the very cutesy introduction where you get to see like a scrapbook of their first year together, we get, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of them at the beginning of the movie, uh, which doesn't really give us any picture of their relationship before we're back at Harper's place where Harper is aggressively in the closet again. Yeah. I really hate that the way she ends up coming out too is they're having like a big Christmas party and it's like a, they're doing the white elephant gift exchange and Harper's sister Sloan in front of everybody reveals that Harper is a lesbian and Harper denies it while Abby is standing there watching all of this happen. And, you know, Slow never gets told that, hey, outing somebody like that is like really shitty and like you shouldn't have done that. Not really yeah, addressed. it's not really addressed. And then we get like a, a nice little wrap up where it's like one year later and they're engaged and like everything is fine. Like there's no opportunity to really deal with the, the fallout of this within the family itself and between Harper and Abby. And like, I mean, like a lot of really awful stuff happens uh, to Abby as a result of Harper's behavior. And we just never get to see any resolution to that, which was, you know, a little bit disappointing. It felt too much, you know, wrapped up with a bow, but also like, we're just going to pretend that, you know, everything is fine. Yeah. The dad gets over all his prejudice in a nap. Like it's, 
it's just like we snap our fingers and all the angst is gone and we're having a nice Christmas. Really, the tone is like, I think, the major problem with this movie. I think if it committed to any of the tones that are present in here, there's enough here that it would have been fine. Like if it was just an angst ridden, just that, that was the movie and it was done really, really well. And I just watched it and cried my heart out. And like, that's a genuine movie that like that can be good. But I have to know that going in and I have to want to watch that. If it had been the Dan Levy show and like the sister Jane, like these campy bonkers characters that are kind of like always doing wacky things. And it was like just a holiday romp. Like that would be something. Or if it like leaned into being an actual rom-com, like all the stuff that seemed like was happening with Abby and Riley, who had a bunch of scenes that felt like the beginning of a budding romance. They have so much chemistry together. And it's the one thing that everyone has been focusing on that I've seen is like Aubrey Plaza is so hot. Aubrey Plaza is so great. Abby should have just gone with Riley, Aubrey Plaza's character, because Aubrey Plaza is the best. And like, it's hard to disagree with that because they were so fun together and had so much chemistry. And then every time you see Abby and Harper together, it's the end. Yeah. And if this movie was more similar to the construction of like a Hallmark or a Lifetime movie, that's what would have happened. You know, it's very common for those movies to start with one character being in a very visibly wrong relationship and then meeting somebody else. And like that becomes the love interest. So, you know, all of those elements were there. It was a good movie. And I think it's, you know, important that it's a it was an important a big movie. budget, high, you know, it's a studio movie and all of that. That's very important for these types of stories. But yeah, in terms of like feel good Christmas, I didn't really do that at all. I do also want to mention that I really like Mackenzie Davis. And even though Harper is not my favorite character, I thought she gave a lot of good emotion. And I think she she's really great. I don't want to just like dunk on her character and like have that come across as me not liking her as an actor. But she is very good. Yeah, all the performances were good, but all the characters were terrible. Uh, yes, especially Alison Brie's character, who is just the worst. Big shout out to how awful she is and how awful her children are, who stole a bunch of stuff and threw it in Abby's backpack. So she got arrested. Horrible. It's like a bracelet, but yeah. Whatever. It doesn't come out until, like, the literal end of the movie. They were like, we're the ones that did the thing. That so. really upset me. Children are awful. All right, well, moving from a a movie that was queer but kind of disappointed, let's talk about a movie that's queer and really delivered in every aspect. Yay. Okay. This is my new favorite Christmas movie. This is The Christmas Sit-Up. This is uh, directed by Pat Mills, written by Michael J. Murray. Uh, the cast includes Ben Lewis and Blake Lee, who are married in real life, and Ellen Wong and Fran Fisher. The premise here is, as they enjoy the local holidays together, Hugo and Patrick's effect, or attraction to each other is undeniable. But as Hugo receives word of a big promotion requiring a move to London, he must decide what is most important. There is no tomato meter here, but it has an 83% audience score. Uh, my catch-up scale for this would be, uh, I just wrote down, perfect, dot, as, dot, is, dot, in all capitals, zero catch-up, no hint of catch-up in sight. As I'm sure it is obvious, I absolutely love this movie. I'm sure I'm very biased, but uh, I just, I watched it and I cried, I smiled, I laughed. It was wonderful. It is, I like, it really showed me why people like these kind of cheesy, hallmarky movies when it is actually targeted to you and like you can see yourself in them. Like it's hard for me to get invested in this kind of movie with characters that I don't care about, but in here I got so invested and like I could see myself with characters. This was exactly what I wanted from like a queer person. Yeah, you worked really hard to hunt this movie down so you could watch it as well. Oh my god. I 
signed up for two years of NordVPN that I have to cancel to try and find it through a VPN somehow. I like posted on forums. I was hunting for days, like just based off the trailer and really liking Ben Lewis, who's the lead in this, uh, and Fran Drescher. And just like, I could tell like, this is something I think I'm going to really like. I really want to find this. I did end up finding it um quote unquote, accidentally somewhere in the internet. So that was nice. <laughs> uh, my big thing here is just, I love the two leads so much. Ben Lewis, as our lead uh, main guy here, Hugo, is what made Arrow watchable for me in uh, so many of the last seasons. Uh, he plays Oliver's gay son from the future in all the flash forward scenes. And he's great in that. Um, and he's got a lot of the same vibes here, that adorkable slash relatable, just radiating charisma, makes him super invested. And he's playing here against his actual real-life husband, Blake Lee, who is equally as good. And just their chemistry is just exploding. It's like I said, at the first scene they meet each other, it's not like they have sparks. It's like it's already full on fireworks. And I've even heard in interviews where like the director was having to kind of direct them around, like, okay, this is your this is you're supposed to be meeting each other for the first time in a long time. There's supposed to be like some sparks and you're supposed to be like blurty, but like you haven't been married 10 years. So they have to like kind of tone some things down, make the story work, which I think is hilarious. In so many of these movies, they rarely even have good chemistry, let alone any chemistry. So from here, it was just so much easier to get into this movie. And there was zero question of like, will they, won't they? There was no enemies to lovers. There was really almost no conflict. Like the conflict was all external, which I really liked. It was no internal conflict. There was no conflict over them being gay. There was no conflict over anyone in the story not wanting them to get together. It was all just, he had a job opportunity in London. What's he going to do? And that was kind of just thrown in there too. So I don't know. I loved it. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. And I definitely gave it a perfect instance for myself. I know when I was watching it, I was kind of giving you some live updates as I was doing so. And with respect to Patrick, I was like, nobody in this movie understands subtlety at all. Like Patrick was not being in any way shy about indicating his interest. You know, he quote unquote left his gloves behind after delivering this Christmas tree. When he bumps into Hugo and uh, his best gal pal, he assumes that they're married. And when Hugo's mom is like, oh no, one's gay, one's straight, he's immediately like, oh, who's gay, who's straight? Like just trying to yeah. establish that. Like he's very forward in asking Hugo to like get a hot chocolate and like do all of these things. So I, I think in a straight scenario, I might have found the behavior like a little bit over at the top. But I think like obviously because they're married in real life, just like the chemistry was so good and the dynamic was so good that it was, you know, I didn't have any issue buying into that. And my issue with like a lot of like the straight stories is that, you know, everybody is really phoning it in for a lot of these movies. So there's almost no connection between these people that makes me really care whether or not they end up together and a lot of the time it's not until like the midpoint of the movie that it occurs to the two characters that that's a possibility so you know we arrive back at his hometown and he meets this guy quote unquote accidentally because his mom has arranged for this tree to be delivered at a specific time and we're basically off and running right from the beginning so yeah I, I enjoyed it a lot uh, I think it's really good that both Hallmark and Lifetime and Paramount and you know all of these are actually investing in creating these types of movies with queer narratives because we're long overdue and you know the resulting product is 
surprisingly good. Yeah, I think how this one addressed the sexuality was also my favorite of all of these. I really liked that it wasn't a conflict to any of these characters, but they still took the time to have conversations and address the road that it took to get here and how finding yourself would take time. And there was like these really nice conversations about it, but that also they took the time to put in this subplot of the old owner of the train station who was gay in the 20s. And they were using this subplot to kind of acknowledge how far we've come and the struggles we face to get here without needing to inject like a random homophobic townsperson or family member or friend or something. It was like literally the antithesis of Happiest Season and how everyone just seemed so homophobic in that movie. And it was like so much drama around it all. And this movie, it was like, it's just a little thing in the background there that we're going to talk about and move on from. Mm -hmm. There was a lot in here that was distinctly queer, which I really liked. That it was definitely not just like they took a script and just changed one of the genders. Like the stuff you're mentioning with like the little like trying to figure out if someone you're interested in is gay or not. You have to like kind of poke some of those questions like, oh, are you married? And like these little things that you have to do to try and like figure it out. There's lots of cute little things in there. That scene because that's also just like a tactic for finding out whether or not somebody is single is like, oh, if a man and a woman are together and they're like, oh, this yeah. is their spouse. And they're like, oh, sorry, we're not together. And you're like, oh, convenient. Yeah. Like just a way of establishing that information but i just love how quick he was to be like oh who's gay and who's straight like yeah. just just to make sure i know that i'm reading the situation correctly uh, it was just funny to me the way that there was fully no subtlety at all and everybody was aware at oh all and times. everyone was trying to get them together the whole time and it was literally just yeah. that uh, hugo was so you know he's coming off the whole hotshot New York lawyer kind of little uptight thing and so there's like a little bit of him trying to be like oh I don't know if I want to get into like a relationship right now like oh I like him but like I'm going back to New York soon I shouldn't do anything and then like very quickly just like lets that go um, and they go on like adorable little dates like Patrick takes him over to the tree farm that he works at and has like this whole date set up for him with like his favorite foods that he guessed through this app he developed and that was a weird subplot I get acknowledge that but it was just so cute and there was multiple kisses we didn't have to wait till the very end for a kiss. Yes. Another thing I really liked about this is that it wasn't just them that I liked, and it wasn't just them holding up this movie. A lot of these movies seem to have almost nothing going on with the subplots, and they're just kind of there to prop up whatever main plot we've got going on. And it's really on the main two characters to like lift the movie up. But here, Fran Drescher as Hugo's mom was really great. Perfect casting. It's often like a kind of a balance between that like just overbearing enough, heavily invested Midwestern mom character that can come off like too aggressive. But here she's just like gently pushing and she's just like kind of pulling a little bit of strings here and there to get pushed them together. And you can tell she's so loving and enthusiastic and Fran is really giving her all here. And even I really liked uh, Hugo's best friend, Ellen Wong, here. And the best friend character in these movies usually gets the shortest end of the stick. But here, Maddie had more scenes, more to do. They had great chemistry together, uh, Hugo and uh, and Maddie. I think some of that is maybe that they worked on Scott Pilgrim together. So maybe they've been friends for a while. It's, it felt very authentic. And I've seen some pictures of them together, and they seem to be friends mm -hmm. in real life. And that she even got... She also gets, like, a romance yeah, plot she gets, that is satisfying. She gets a pretty satisfying romance subplot of her own with uh, Hugo's brother, who's really cute. They don't look like brothers at all, but that's fine. He's, like, coming back from the military... And he's like, oh, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time, Maddie. You're looking hot now. 
and they have flirty times and Hugo's kind of like against it at first. And and Hugo has some really good scenes with his brother too, where they kind of connect at how they haven't really had a great relationship. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that it's because he's gay, just like they don't really know how to connect together. And like one was always like Hugo had more things going on with his dad. He was a little bit jealous of like all the time they spent together in the workshop before the dad passed away, obviously drink dead dad. Like it filled a lot of those <laughs> like drinky game boxes for sure. But like, it was all very satisfying. Well done. Thought was put into all these little subplots and characters and it was really well-rounded. A couple of years ago, I started making bingo cards for watching these Hallmark movies because they're so predictable and tropey. And since you before this year have not really been one to watch these oh, types of Christmas anymore. movies. Well, they weren't clear ones before this year. <laughs> yeah, but you were able to utilize the bingo card that I made this year. And you were definitely able to take off a lot of boxes modified for pretty much all of the movies that you watched, yeah, I think. I got a couple near bingos. Dashing in December was like one off a of bingo. Like instantly it was like, okay, antagonistic flirting. There's like a dead parent. Like you're just, you're checking all these boxes. Like return to small Yeah, trying to save the family city, business. But, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's like curmudgeonly needs to learn the magic of Christmas. Like there's, yeah. there's so many boxes you're checking off. Unfortunately, how it randomized, I wasn't quite in a line. But there is a lot of boxes also that we were talking about how you might have to kind of adjust these more significantly if there's more of these like clear ones coming out because they are different and they hit different beats like one obvious one is that there's often someone who's like closeted as in happiest season um both happiest season and uh, the christmas setup had drag queens in it which yep. you know is just sort of generally the queer experience. So and did uh, Dashing in December, actually. Oh, did it really? They go to the drag bar in Dashing December. It's like a pop-up bar. Okay, I must have missed yeah. that when I was watching it. No, it's it's a big thing. Like, a drag queen bar, they're always at a bar. It's always the same scene, practically. But, yeah, definitely an easy one to get a drag bar going. Yeah, but, yeah, just some small things. Just sort of yeah. the, the interactions and the socialization. And, of course... There's like the relationship element. One but... of them was out in high school. That was a big thing in these. Like Patrick was out in high school. One of the other ones is really one. So why it comes up. out like during his graduation speech. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Why it comes out during his graduation speech. And then uh, the other... happiest season, Harper comes out when she's or not Harper. Sorry. Abby, Abby comes out when she's like nineteen or something. So not yeah. in high school, but definitely yeah. at an earlier stage of life. There's often specifically the one girl or the one guy you dated uh, when you were closeted. Yeah. That comes back into the picture. Or that you're like BFFs with as yeah. an adult, which I think is pretty idealistic, but yeah. that's the nature of the movie. I'm not going to critique that too much. But yeah, I mean, the fact that there's a bingo card that you can generate that's pretty much universal for these types of movies just shows that like you can make a familiar story work for a non-heterosexual narrative and we should just be doing more of that so hopefully next year we have more than a handful of these i don't know if dashing in december and the christmas setup and i think there was another one that hallmark did you know i don't know how successful these were but i hope that they did have some success so that they yeah. have incentive to continue making so happiest season broke numbers on hulu like it was yes. extremely successful I've heard similar things about the Christmas setup that it has been a massive hit for uh, 
lifetime. I'm not sure about the but others. I mean, so much of that is just because, you know, when all you have are crumbs, even if it's bad, you know, you want yeah. to support it because that means that you eventually get a bigger slice of the pie down the road. So. And the, Chris- the Christmas setup has already been confirmed to be getting a sequel. Oh, fun. That'll be good. I wouldn't be surprised if Happiest Season gets a sequel. Give me the Riley spinoff. I don't think Happiest Season is necessarily a movie that needs to have a sequel, but I would certainly like to see a, a big budget, you know, studio movie that focuses on a non-coming out story, preferably, yeah. uh, and just make that a norm. That's it for us this episode. Join us again next time for our first episode of 2021, finally, where we attempt to shake things up a bit. In January, we're going to be watching movies that are brand new to both of us. Consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find our show. The review may land you a shout-out in a future episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at MovieCatchUpPod, for episode updates and other news. We hope you and yours had a safe and happy holiday, and that you're having a happy new year.